We respectfully acknowledge the Namala people, past, present and emerging, as the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast was produced. Hi, I'm Jane, the Community Coordinator at The Junction Co in Port Hedland, and I'm talking today with Shona Erskine, a person who I consider to be a creative thinking guru. Now, Shona, um, I see that you have moved from being a dancer to a psychologist, a lecturer, and a business owner. Can you just give us a little bit of background to the journey uh, that has taken you to this point? Mm, yes. So um, I started out my artistic life as a dancer and I was one of those young girls that headed down to the local ballet school and um, moved up through the ranks of lots and lots of ballet classes and plies and releves and point classes and tutus and all that sort of thing. And yes, so, (laughs) so many young girls will go down that avenue. Um, I then auditioned for the Victorian College of the Arts in the early 90s. And um, three years later, I graduated with a Bachelor of Dance. And at the time, and it it still is the way that we train our dancers um, these days, is that the courses are very vocationally focused. Um, What I mean by that is lots and lots of dancing hours. Um, very physical. Um, usually there's about 40 hours a week in the course at a sort of minimum with a one-hour lunch break. So you really, even though it's a university degree, it's not a university degree like most university degrees by any means. Yeah. And so when I graduated, I started working as a dancer and I was really still very curious about the world and about all the things that was possible to learn. And so a few years after graduating, I enrolled in a psychology degree, just an undergrad um, um, single stream because I already had a, a bachelor. And I I was really fortunate because at the time the, – the De- Deakin University was in particular had just started to run online courses where you distance ed, where you could have your um, internet service at home, everything would be delivered to you and you could um, study these courses in, in um, almost more like you were really going to university than it had been in the past. And so I was able to chip away at my psychology degree, which ended up taking me 10 years but I was able to chip away at that while still doing the dancing. So if the dancing was contracts were really big for a particular semester, I would defer. I wouldn't do anything that semester. Um, If they were lighter on another semester, I might do a unit. And so I gradually just chipped away at it over all the years I was dancing. And um, it wasn't actually until I had my stop dancing, had some children and just uh, look, Look, dancing's really hard work on the body and and you just get really sore yeah. after a while. <laughs> and so <laughs> I really needed other ways to be able to engage with the world and engage with creativity and the theatre and practice and all those things um, but not be the one who was doing all the strain and stress on the body. So when I then started working as a psychologist about a decade ago, I um, also did a lot of what you might call dramaturgical work. So I was in the theatre, I was in the space, but I was there around the meaning-making of the work or helping the performers to achieve what they wanted to achieve. And my psychology practice has stayed very much in that domain where I work with um, anyone who's interested in um, 
top level performance. So whether you're a, a performer or an athlete or um, an executive officer or an artistic director, any of those kind of things, um, and creativity and communication and collaboration. So that's been that's been my journey. And um, I'm now, I would say I'm now pretty much retired from the, the theatre as a dancer. I feel like finally my body is my own. And so <laughs> if I do any dancing, it's just from my pleasure alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now I know that, um, you know, the, the creativity has become a really uh, valued skill uh you know, from a lot of employers uh, out there across the world. And um, I've uh, been fortunate enough to be doing a creative uh, thinking program with you over the last, uh, actually through COVID, actually the whole three months, a uh, couple of hours a week. And um, it is certainly built on my understanding of what uh, I learned at um, uni as being a creative uh, thinker uh, and has built, uh, you know, hugely on, on uh, how that uh, impacts on or actually everyday life and the way, the way I, I operated here at work. Um, how, did you, how did you get to that point where, where this became uh, a big interest for you? Yes. Well, I had been really interested to look very closely at creativity in my master's um, in, at psychology, in psychology. I was at Melbourne Uni at the time and it was about 20 years ago. And I did a semester, there was a semester's unit where I had a little bit of flexibility and so I did go and look at um, the available literature and creativity at the time. And I was not very impressed with what I read. And what I mean by that was I had built up a concept of creativity, a very um, a working model of creativity as a person who'd been involved in the arts. And so it was not only a thinking process for me, but it was a very functional behavioural process as well. And what I was reading um, at the time well, didn't feel like it was a match, actually, and I wasn't really interested in what they were saying. It didn't feel like it had a truth for me. So I went off and did other things for my master's. And then, um, you know, by the time I'd finished all my study and um, had set up working as a psychologist, there was a burgeoning field in neuropsychology and neuroscience around creativity. And, in fact, that research has proved to be incredibly exciting. And so it's been, the studies have been able to take place because of the way that we can uh, scan brains and look at brains. So it's all it also the advancement of that technology, but it's also about the way we think about how we think and about how the functions of the brain and how the brain works. And what I, found, what I have found with this new body of research is that it's really dynamic. It's really applicable. It lines up absolutely beautifully with artistic practice. I see no contradictions in it at all. And I also see that it doesn't try to control or conform artistic practice either. Mm. So it's not saying mm. this is how it is and so therefore we know better than you people who've been doing this for hundreds of years, passing information down, you know, from one generation to another. It's, um, it's really user-friendly, um, really simple. I think it's sitting really, really well. So you know, in, ter in terms of scientific research, it's a very new area, um, but one that is receiving a lot of attention and, and one that I think um, is very exciting for artists. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Because the brain does have, um, well, you know, I call it the brain, but um, your, your mind has quite a lot of control over the way you uh, work and the way you uh, think about things. And, um, you know, I'm thinking uh, for for me um, as a as a, a practitioner of creative um, concepts and ideas, you know, I have great difficulty in um, in calling myself an artist, and you know, to the point where on exhibition days, you know, I'll go away and hide somewhere because I'd rather not even show people my work than you know be exposed in some way. So, I've got this really amazing quote that. Um, that sort of has uh, underpinned a lot of the questions, and I'm, I'm just going to read it. If you wake up in the morning and you think, and you can't think about anything else but singing, then you should be a singer. Now, this line has come from, of all places, uh, a movie called Sister Act Two, and um, I just want to have a wee, you know, sort of maybe pull this uh, concept apart a little bit with you. And so, I want to ask, you know, if someone creates art, does that make them an artist? And and what part of their thinking could stop them from using that word, I guess? Mm. Yeah, look, there's there's a whole lot of different ways that I would want to look at the, the question that you just asked. So, um, you know, if you think about the quote, you think about this thing of just waking up in the morning and for no apparent reason the only thing that you want to do is sing. Mm-hmm. And so this, this person saying, and so you should go and sing. So one of the things that um, is completely apparent for um, anyone on the outside looking at any kind of artist is that there's um, an incredible amount of meaning in the practice Mm. of their art form. And so what what we often see with artists is that they have um, a just-because-ness about their absolute need to do this. So even if people on the outside are saying, um, I can't understand why you're doing that. It doesn't make you any money. How can you live like this? What's the value of it? What's the purpose of it? Um, Artists will have, no, it's just I have to to do it. I feel some kind of compulsion or compelled to do it. Um, And and, and that is, I believe, incredibly important. Because if you are going to function as any type of artist, performing or visual artist, then you're going to need to do lots and lots of hours of work to build the skills in that area. So um, dance, classical music, or gymnastics, those type of things, they all require people at a really young age to be putting lots and lots of hours in. Artists will disappear into the studio and they'll say, oh, Shona, you know, I... I, um, you know, I, I love being there, but when I'm there, my children don't eat properly or, you know, I just feel like I just want to be there all the time. And um, I think both those things are incredibly important um, because if you don't find meaning in the work that you do, then you're going to be white-knuckling your way through it and mm. you're, that, that doesn't work at all for someone in their life. And if you aren't able to put in the hours and hours of practice, then you're not going to be at a place where you can make the work and call yourself an artist because you're not actually doing anything in the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really easy, I think, for you know people uh, like myself because I, I struggle to call myself an artist. I think it's really easy for us to put a lot of other things ahead of what we consider to be um, 
you know, an activity that is purely for ourselves, and um, and we and we do tend to uh, not prioritize that at the top level of our of our of importance in our in our daily lives, and uh, and as a consequence, of course, you know, like me, you put everything off to the last minute, and then you kind of go, oh my god, oh my god, oh my gosh, how am I going to get all this done? Um, I wonder whether there is, you know, something fundamental in the way that we think, you know, a quality or a mindset that allows us uh, to, um, you know, prevent ourselves from fulfilling uh, our dream, if you like, you know, by, by being able to call ourselves an artist. You know, mm. Do you think that mm. we, we sabotage ourselves? Yeah, yes. We all do, always, just because that's how our brains work. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so, you know, so let me, let me start with, the, with that part of what you're saying and come back to the, what is the, is there something fundamental in our thinking that, that makes us an artist? So let's put that across the side for a minute and talk maybe more about what it means if you somehow self-sabotaging and people will experience that all the time, um, self-doubt, procrastination, um, worry about how oh, they're yeah, going to be me. accepted. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's different for everyone. It's the same for everyone, but it's different for everyone as well. So as a psychologist, I, um, I'm interested in looking at um, two different things. So the first one being the difference between what's going on in the inside and what's going on in the outside. Mm. So think about the outside being um, about what other people can observe you do. It's your behavior. It's visible from the outside. It's things that you say. It's actions that you take. It's things that other people can observe through their senses. And then you have an inside and your inside is your psychological landscape and it's all of your thinking, your images for the future, memories that you have, your emotions, body sensations, um, things that you want to do, things that are meaningful, valuable, things that you don't want to do. Um, it has all your schemas, ways you get activated, all your history of relationships, everything. And this is a psychological space and no one can know anything about that space unless you tell them. They can't observe it from the no. outside. You need to you need to take it from your inside to your outside if you want someone to know how you feel or if you want someone to know yeah. how you think. It's covert. That's a really excellent way of I've just I've just thinking about, you know, a back door in the back of my brain where all that stuff comes trucking out. You know, I like I lead it like a uh, like the Pied Piper, so that all those things can come out because I do bury them deeply in my head and and then my head takes over and I can't do anything because I, yeah, <laughs> that's right. a brilliant yeah. way of looking at it. Right, and we want, we want if you think about them like, the, say, two sides of the same coin. We want to have a balance between the inside and the outside. So if, and, and I maybe just want to draw our attention as well to the word psychological it's not logical in there, but we have a hugely logical brain capacity. And what we have a tendency to do is because a logical brain is so effective in the external world is we turn that logical brain back in on ourselves and we try to solve our thinking logically or our feelings logically. And actually, we, that, that can actually, in fact, make you feel worse a lot of the time. And so... One of these things about 
the question was, I, I can't get to my outside stuff. You know, I can't produce enough work or I can't um, be proud of my work. I can't celebrate my work or I'm incredibly nervous about inviting people to see my work. So there might all be all these outside behaviors that you want to engage in as a successful artist or as an artist. So you can call yourself an artist. And one of the first things we want to check is, is there anything in that psychological domain that's getting in the way of you doing the outside stuff? Um, so that would be something that's definitely um, worth a look at. And we all, because of the way that we learn as human beings, we invariably all have some kind of scaffolding in our brain that um, helps us and also doesn't help us at the same time. <laughs> and um, so it's very normal to have some kind of um, psychological uh, you know, series of um, thoughts or emotions that are getting in the way of you doing what you want to do. So, yeah, a conversation around the inside and the outside because sometimes, you, sometimes you're just not doing it. Yeah. And people don't realize that, well, sometimes in the world you just have to act. Yeah. As well. Just do it. Yeah. Um, just do it. Just yeah. do it. And I have to say, I need to underline that and say it's not that simple. And changing no. behavior is one of the most difficult things we do. So there's a whole lot of skills we can work with for that as well. So, you know, that's, that's the first part of what I would say is I'd be really, I would be really observing that inside outside balance. Mm. Mm. And, the other thing that I would be observing, which goes right back to where when you said, you know, if you wake up in the morning and you can't think of anything but singing, then you should be a singer and how valuable and meaningful and important that is. So um, in psychology, when we talk about values, we are talking about them very personally and each individual has their own set of values that are unique just to them. And each domain of a human's life has a little set of values. So if you're standing in your artistic domain, it might have certain values like adventure, excitement and beauty or something. But if you're standing in the family domain, it might have things like security and caring. And yeah. You know, you've got all these different domains and they might overlap. They shift and move. Like think of them like um, air bubbles on top of the water. Sometimes they join, separate, they move around depending on what's happening in your life. But what we have in the arts is we then have culture. And culture is when a group of people share the same values. Mm. And culture has um, virtues and crimes. So unlike personal values, which have no right or wrong, they just are, yeah. Yeah. we now have these artistic cultures which say this type of behaviour I will, will reward and this is good work by our standards and this type of behaviour we will punish and this type of work is of poor standard by our values. Um, right. Right. So, you know, you, you can have an individual, if I think about dance, who adores dance and just wants to dance all their lives, but they just cannot meet the standard of the culture they wish to join. And, and, and you know, classical ballet, I can think of really as a really clear example of that. You know, you almost have to be born with the right gene pool to make it um, at the top levels of ballet. But anybody can dance. Mm. In fact, all bodies can dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so the other thing we want to look at there is to understand um, what's going on between what is there in this culture 
of art that you wish to be heralded in? Who do you want to call you an artist? And what are those standards? And then do those standards line up with your own personal values? Or are they in conflict with them? Mm. And so there's a lot of questions we can ask around that too. And so maybe... You know, maybe my explanation is uh, making it clear that there's no real simple answer to identity and forming an identity. No, no. But I think one thing that um, just in this question alone has highlighted is that there can be work done to to help, you know, to, to give you uh, maybe more insights or, or to help change patterns that you've uh, put in place you know that um, psychological and logical brain you know for me that that's a real uh, light bulb moment in which I can actually do some work you know it's not like it's inherently born in you that that's just the way things are we can change because our brain and our thinking is, is adaptable you know that that's enormous help for people out there who struggle to figure out, you know, maybe the, the you know, that difference between uh, the values and the cultures in their surroundings and, and, their, and the environment that they're going to work in. Um, you know, they can easily sort of map things out and then kind of not be disappointed by, uh, you know, the results that, uh, that are becoming apparent or... Um, mm. They could, they could choose to then go, oh, I really love uh, this type of dance, but it, it may not be something that's going to be possible for me. So where else can I look? You know, there's other avenues. And then people can then start mapping out, you know, in, in a slightly different way, still staying within the, you know, the thing that they love. And that that's real, you know, to me, I think it's a, it's a, a lovely idea that um, you can have a little bit of, or do a little bit of research and have some and have some control over what you're going to do and how you're going to do it, just by thinking about how you think and then investigating outside that to uh, to give yourself some more scope. Yeah, very much so. I mean, the thing that that we talk about in psychology is that what you're feeling and thinking is normal. Like, rarely is it not normal <laughs> what you're thinking and feeling. Um, and in fact, part of the issue with our thoughts in particular, our thoughts and feelings, is not that we have those type of thoughts that undercut us or lead us to procrastinate or tell us that we're no good, is that we all don't openly acknowledge we all have those thoughts. They're just mm-hmm. thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's normal. What you are thinking or what you're feeling is normal. And, you know, in all my years of working, I've never heard someone tell me their story and then what they're thinking and feeling. And their feelings and thinking not having been warranted in some way. Mm. You know, so yeah. um, life happens for us and we have these responses and it's normal to have those responses. Yeah. And the other thing that you say is it's absolutely changeable. Mm. You know, we have yeah. it's, it's a huge amount of options for us for both the psychological landscape and also the, the external world that we inhabit with other human beings. Mm. Um and that's the thing about psychology is that it's not a treatment. It's not one of these things where you as an individual are passive and you take a pill and that's it. No. It's, yeah. it's a very yeah. active, very engaged, um, very curious 
um, discipline that is about you knowing more about yourself and finding those ways to change and be in the world Mm. way that's valuable yeah I mean I I have hope now (laughs) because I yeah, I'm one of those people, you know, I, fa- I failed art at, at, in senior high school and I wanted to be an art teacher. So I had to pivot the way I thought about the rest of my life quite quickly um, because of that, you know, silly result. And, um, and it's taken me a really long time to be able to go, yes, I really want to do this because I, I felt like I'd failed. I felt like I, I didn't have the talent. I mean, my my parents actually told me that. Well, obviously, you don't have what it takes. So, um, yeah, it's not until you stop and you assess your life. And uh, for me, you know, it was recently I, I looked and thought, you know, I've only got this amount of time left until I'm the same age as my mother was when she passed away. And she had lots of things she wanted to do, particularly in the art field because she's quite arty. Um, and I didn't want to be in that position. I wanted to be able to start ticking off things on my bucket list, uh, so that I actually got to do them. So I, I finished my art degree last year. Um, but at the end of the year or all the way through my final year where we had to have exhibitions, I found it incredibly difficult. And my friends at art school, you know, they're majoring in painting and they, they, they laugh at me because I can't call myself an artist. Um, but this has given me sort of a, an idea that there are steps that you can take to get to a point where you can identify as an artist purely by looking at the way that, you know, your, your, your psychological thinking um, is, a, is not in balance with, you know, the outside of your brain, really, you know, the, your environment, your circumstances. And, um, you know, right. do you think that there are clear steps that people can take to get to that point? Yeah, very much so. And, you know, psychology is, is out of place and has been out of place for a number of decades now where, where the research is really robust around what works mm-hmm. and, um, and what theoretical um, uh, bodies of knowledge that we can base those um, skills that people might learn in. And, and a lot of psychology is really skill-based um, and the movies probably don't um, <laughs> give psychology such a, a good, you know, people might not think as that as being what it is. I think there's a lot of, um, you know, reflecting back and just talking through stuff but not really getting things to practice in your life. But I, I very much work um, with a lot of practical skills. And so I think, um, but what I say in saying that, I think that there are a lot of different nuances and different theoretical um, processes in psychology. And I think it is really good to match yourself up with one that's going to be most effective for you. And also, I think that the process of discovering more about yourself or more about being in the world mm. is a very nonlinear process. And so, you know, I hear you saying that um, it it probably did come about more from a value place where you had a moment of like, well, okay, this is where I'm at in my life. This is what I want it to be about and this is what I want to be important about and I don't want to miss that. And so you moved at it from that way, whereas, you know, I might work with a 17-year-old performer who has just started to feel performance anxiety. And so their journey might start where it's like, well, I never felt that before. I always was really excited to perform and now I'm getting really scared. 
Um, So I think people come to these questions from all kinds of different angles and I think what's important is to work from where you're at always. That's yeah, that's really good advice, because we did a uh, in our art. Oh gosh, I, I can't even remember one of our classes. We did a, a a process where you had to figure out what your environment is to allow you to be comfortable to create, mm-hmm. and it was quite. It was you know in a class of you know ten or twelve uh, women, everybody's process was different, and. And that highlighted the fact that it is an, an incredibly individual journey to go from, you know, uh, start to finish to get to that point, I guess, where you, you know, you're going to feel confident enough uh, to say, to call yourself an artist or, or to believe that this is the path that you really want to be on. Because I think, as you said, you know, we're always uh, constantly second guessing ourselves and, uh, you know, yeah, so... Yeah, finding out what works for you, what where you're from, you know, the mm. point of start, and then and then think deeply thinking about the things that make you work well, and yeah, and tick the boxes or or uh, can get you past that hurdle. Um, right. The reflective nature in which it it um, you know you can use it is really good. Right, because I will just. You know, I do just want to say something about the word failure because you, you know, you said I failed it. You know, it's yeah, a failure. Yeah. I'm not really good enough. Because um, one of the things that has appeared really strongly in the literature around creativity is um, that very much so we want to reconceptualize what we think of as a failure, mm-hmm. and that every every action is actually about how much data can you mine from that. So that you can then move into the next stage and the next one and the next one. And that you step your way quite quickly from one action to another to another. And it's not about whether the action is a success or a failure. It's about how much you can get, how much data you can gather from it. And in fact, that the only behavior that is punishable in a creative system is inactivity. It's not, in fact, failure. It's not falling on your face. It's not forgetting your lines. It's not mixing the wrong type of paint together. It's not making um, a sculpture of another human being that looks nothing like another human being. It's actually inactivity. And I think that that's really significant because that plays a lot to this inside-outside um, yes little idea that um, I set up there is that if in on the outside you are not doing any artistic behavior then we really want to be taking a look at your inside and going what is stopping you from getting to the outside because that that's going to interrupt the whole system Mm -hmm. for you yeah and the one thing that I I certainly learned in in the last three years of the degree is you know there there's no great there's no point in which you can judge as being the best place to start. It's actually starting and working with all the things that come your way. So that they could be things that you're not really interested in, but if you get past that one slight hurdle, there could be a raft of things that will inform the way you work for years to come. And, um, yeah, I often used to come up with an idea and think that's what I'm going to do. And my tutors would 
invariably come back to me and say, well, actually, Jane, it's the experimenting, it's the actions that you take that will inform where you go, not an idea, because the idea has nothing around it. There's no substance. And that's what you've just talked about. It's actually, you know, having the data, the information, the referencing, the, yeah, that hardcore action that allows you to move forward, keep moving forward. Yes, we want to keep um, iterating between thinking and doing and thinking and doing and thinking and doing or reflecting and doing or whatever words you like to use. What becomes very challenging for us, not just as artists, but for all of us as human beings, is when we try to create um, cognitive safety. And what we mean by that is that um, there's so many possibilities and so many different ways that things could go depending on the choice I make. So what I will do is I will overwork my brain and my thinking to try to make sure that the path that I lay down for myself is completely safe and that nothing bad will happen. But of course, that's impossible to do because, uh, and and then what you will experience as a result of that is a, a stressful state, an uncomfortable stressful state, but lots of anxiety, you'll be quite immobilized, you might procrastinate quite a lot, which means it might make you more anxious, because you're not actually acting in the world. And so, yeah, we do, we want to, um, we want to do the thinking and reflecting, but we want to keep it light enough, that it, it doesn't try to keep us overly safe. We need to take risks in the world. It's how we learn. It's how we grow. And so you, you know, want you to be able to take that risk and then come back. And yeah. I think what I would say to anyone who is um, kind of, you know, caught in the overthinking is yes. when you go to do a behaviour in the outside, be really comfortable with making it a super, super small step. Like do something that is 100% within your control. Don't go any further than that. <laughs> yeah. Just do something that's 100% in your control and observe that and then come back and do something that's, you know, 99% within your control and then something that's 98% within your control. And because sometimes what gets really hard is if you're, if you're out of practice in your form, you're, you have a memory of where you used to be or you have yes. an idea of where you want to be, but yes. the reality is you're not there now yeah. and you have to yeah. build that up again. and and working with something that's 100% within your control is an excellent way to go because changing behaviour is one of the most difficult things mm-hmm. that we can do. Oh, yeah. I had um, a question which, you know, is slightly around that and it was, you know, how does acceptance and control have a place in preventing, you know, people from using, you know, uh, using their practice in a way that, you know, gets them to that point that they want to be and, um yeah, I, I often wonder whether, um, you know, I'm constantly controlling the situation by either dismissing or, or um, you know, reducing the significance uh, so that uh, my, my end result is always going to be that, you know, I'm never going to be an artist because, you know, people are just being nice to me or people are just... Uh, or they just want to have a memory of this event, so they're buying, you know, this little piece and blah, blah, blah. So that I'm always, um, you know, having to accept that uh, I'm not an artist because I've controlled my narrative by saying these are um, almost like, you know, 
charity buys. They're, 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 you know, they're trying to support me, but, you know, they're my friends and it doesn't mean anything. So, you know, is that something that we that we can overcome through thinking about our inside and outside brain and looking at the experience of that questioning where the thinking is coming from and then being able to move on from that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that I would really want to understand if someone was struggling with their identity around an artist in, in the way that you're talking about. So they produce a piece of work and then um, they're unable to, it's, the image I have is that they're unable to have a strong centre in themselves about what that work means to them in terms of the quality, in terms of the work, in terms of its value. And they're they're waiting for other people around them maybe to let them know or they're undercutting themselves Um, or, yeah. So I think that there's potentially a a number of different things going that could be going on there and I think we we want to understand what they are. And and for for me, I think it's important when you're working in the psychology domain and for anyone who hasn't yet seen a psychologist or worked with a psychologist is you are the expert of yourself not the psychologist. Mm -hmm. So I hold the process and the theory, but it is you that is the expert of yourself. And so what it requires is we need to reflect on your own understanding of your experience and see the patterns and some tryouts, some new things, always in line with the theory so that we, we, you know, we get those, the best results for change. But um, the psychologist doesn't actually hold the answer. Um, because we're not the expert of somebody else. That's right. And I guess it's always about the person, yeah, we always have to understand how we, we have to pull apart how we think. That's basically it, isn't it? We have to pull apart, an individual has to pull apart their thinking so that they can examine where this may have come from and to be able to get past it. Would that be right? Right. And I think, you know, um, yes. And thinking is, depending on how old the thinking is, depending on how functional it is or how deeply ingrained it is in you, it may be something that can take 18 months to rebuild the way you think. It may be something that um, you can do within six months. Mm. Um, but, but it is it is changeable and we can begin to watch and observe our thinking. And, you know, I I think this becomes a really important thing for those that do want to make art and do want to put it in the public domain because, you know, it's interesting that you talk about an early experience of failure in the arts Um, because if you think about dance, use that as an example again, is that you're often training from a very young age. And so you will often adopt the language of the adults around you right. as a way of thinking and as a way of mobilising yourself in the world. And so it's always, I think, really useful to go back to and think, well, when did I first start to think about that? Mm. Um, mm. Because you will have used that thinking at some point because it really worked for you. That's why it's there. But you might then reach a point in your life where you're like, oh, gosh, that thinking really doesn't work for me anymore. Right. You know, it worked for me when I was a 15-year-old ballerina or it worked for me when I was a 20-year-old art student. But now 
no, it's not working for me. Yeah, yeah. So that understanding that things change too is actually really important. That, you know, you can't always rely on what's happened in the past, what may have worked for you in the past, because life experience comes into that, uh, you know, and, and can change where you're going or what you're thinking or how you're producing. Um, so you always have to be mindful of the fact that, you know, one thing might have happened or worked, uh, you know, 10 years ago, but actually now you need to look at what's going on and then how how you can, you know, find something else that's going to be the trigger or, or find something else that's going to give you, um, you know, the next step forward. Mm. And, you know, maybe to maybe then to come at this also from another angle because you, you asked the question earlier as well when you said, you know, what is there something fundamental to the thinking of an artist that makes an artist an artist? So, you know, the thing about creativity, um, which I just adore that's a neuropsychology, neuroscience literature on it, is it's saying that everyone is creative because it's a, what the way human beings think. And um, I really enjoy um, the way that Echelon Goldberg talks about creativity. He's a neuropsychologist and he looks at the thinking processes in the human brain and he's actually really clear about what he thinks are the ones that you see in people who are highly creative and artists. And, you know, um, I, I'll go through them because um, I just think they're fascinating to, to think about in relation to, well, do I do that? Do I think that way? Do I do that behaviour? So the first one he talks about is salience and he's really interested in understanding, his, you know, do you have the ability to pose a central problem or to ask an important question? question question mm-hmm. yeah so uh, often artists they um there's a real uh, uh like um content a piece of content or an idea that really kicks them off and they start to ask lots of questions about it why is it like that how long has it been like that how does it relate to other things what is going on they become really curious and about the world around them so that certainly is is something that is really essential to your artistic identity the next thing is novelty. So this is an intense interest in or an ability to find solutions to the to any problem that hasn't you believe hasn't been tackled before. So it's about can you find the new solution, the thing that hasn't been done? Um, because if you are perfectly satisfied with mm. available knowledge, then you're never going to ask a question or look for something new. So. So another part of identity as an artist is are you looking always, you always feel like you're looking for that new thing, that new answer, the better solution. And see how now I don't have to talk in arts language. So the, the farmer who's looking for a machine to harvest something in a better way because they are unhappy with what's, what's there. Before. And yeah. that's another part of it is an iconoclastic frame of mind. So it's a frame of mind where you are unhappy with the status quo. Yep, <laughs> You're dissatisfied. <yeah. laughs> and so that's that's a real human thing as well, isn't it? Yeah, um, definitely. Right. So so anyone in any domain of life, not just artistic, but me- mechanical, scientific, um, any anything. So you, you've got you're posing questions, you're searching for something new because you're dissatisfied mm. with what's there currently. Yeah. And 
there's then kind of these other conflicting ways of thinking. So, for example, you need the ability to relate old knowledge to new knowledge. So you need to be able, and this is really in some ways the opposite of novelty. So instead of just looking for the new thing all the time, you're able to say, well, how did that work in the past? How can I learn from my past? And that's that thing we were talking about earlier with every time you take an action, it's about what data can you mine from that? So what data can I mine from everything that anyone has done before to, to move us forward to this thing that is new? Um, and of course, as I speak, you can see how all of this is about your capacity to generate multiple and diverse approaches to any problem and that you've got this mental flexibility to be able to leap around and see things from different viewpoints um and you you know and as i talk through these things you may well know people who actually do do these mental processes really well Yeah. yeah and then there's um so so those are what we might call those are mental processes those things that i've talked about but very interestingly but actually we've already talked about it so already when i we were talking about the the um the inside and the outside but i was talking about the your values being either personal or these cultural values is that anything you that you create anything new that you make falls into a cultural milieu and if you if it's not different enough from what already exists then no one's going to see it as creative but if it's too far away from what people will accept then it doesn't get integrated. So there's this kind of sweet spot around. And, and so actually, interestingly, the other qualities of a, an artist or a creative person are actually social qualities. And so one of them is um, we talk about drive. So this unrelenting drive to do what you do. And what it means is the people around you might think you're odd because you don't go out because you're too busy painting or you're more interested in your own thing than anyone else's thing. <laughs> and so artists can often get this, and scientists too, can get these reputations as being a bit weird. But actually yeah. this drive is incredibly important and it goes back to what we very first talked about is if you don't practice and build the skill yes. in your craft, whatever it is, then you can't be good enough to be creative at your craft. So, you know, that is so important. And and another another quality there is apart from that drive and doggedness, to be able to do this kind of mental wondering where you kind of deliberately drift and go over there and over there and over there and kind of look at all of these things. Um, But then, you know, back to the cultural things, which I think are really interesting, is you must have resonance with your society, as I said. But interestingly, really creative individuals have social grace. And Goldberg talks about this because, um, you know, he says that, you're going to need to recruit people to your idea. Yes. And yes. whether you need their money or their support or you need them to buy your work, but actually you have um, a social suaveness to you, a charisma, a charm. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I really, when, when we talk about, you know, is there some other fundamental things that creative people do? I think Goldberg as a neuropsychologist speaks really beautifully to what are mental processes and functionality of the brain versus social processes, which are also functions that we can develop and create and upskill ourselves in. 
So, you know, if you're thinking, do I have an identity as an artist? It's like, how did you, how did you respond as I spoke through those things? Did you feel like you could go, yeah, I do that. That's me. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that, you know, as a, yeah, as a sort of a, a benchmark for people to be able to, to look at their own process and their own thinking, you know, those qualities are incredibly important because you can, you know, for me, I, I went through and I went, yeah, okay, <laughs> there's quite a few of those that I, you know, that I carry um, and, yeah, <laughs> when I go back now and I and I look through those and I look at my inside and my outside uh processes I kind of think I need to do a bit of work but it's actually there I just need to connect the dots if you like mm. I need to be able to just yeah because I've, I've got a very logical brain and and I think that um <laughs> there's, there's there's yeah or everything's there for for uh, for an outcome that is better than the one that I've ever told myself in the past <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Great. Because, you know, um, raw talent or raw intelligence is not the best predictor of success. No. And we know that unequivocally in the research. And there are a whole lot of other qualities um, that are about success. And, And I guess as a psychologist, my interest in success is, you know, we could talk about this, um, this fulfillment, this idea of fulfillment. Um, and now for you, um, fulfillment might include very grand um, public gestures of some form. Yes. Yeah. Or, and it's important for us to keep an eye on those things as well and, and provide, you know, my job is often providing the best platform for an artist to be able to get the best shot at those things yeah. that feel out of your control. Yeah. Um, and I think that really important differentiation there between, as I said earlier, take the step that is 100% within your control is so important because your aspirational goals are the ones that are 100% out of your control. Yes. But it's those aspirational goals that drive you and inspire you. Mm. But we want to see you taking the, the, the steps that are 100% within your control, like, um, you know, set your alarm half an hour earlier so that you're getting up at 6 a.m. and you're eating a really good breakfast and you're doing your workout or um, work in your art studio from three till six o'clock, four days a week. Mm. (laughs) You know, these kind of things, we don't talk about them being 100% within your control because they're the things that get you to that aspirational place of having your own exhibition or getting a place in a certain company, those type of things. So, yeah, we want the end. We want the ends to join up, and the aspirational stuff is so so important. But it's not where we act. We act with what's within our control. Shona, thank you so much. My gosh, <laughs> I'm sure that there are lots of people out there who may have struggled in the same way that I have. Um, you know, over the past uh, wee while, um, to under- to even just to understand how. you know how you you can get bogged down by all this and the reality is that it's a small step at a time but it's consistent Mm. and and with that consistency with that uh 
determination and that drive um, because it's something that we love so much and it gives us that fulfillment. You know, you can elevate yourself. You can move forward. You can, you can, you know, get to where you want to be. And you know, you don't always have to call yourself an artist. That's fine. It's you know a label, but it's about understanding that you as a person can work in an artistic way to get to where you want to be. And uh, you've certainly helped uh, my journey and my understanding. And I'm sure there's lots and lots of people out there as well that will feel inspired and um, and confident now in in how they can uh, find their path mm. forward. Yeah. So and thank you very much. You're welcome. And I'll just I just want to put a, a tiny, tiny last little hook on what mm. you just said, Dan, um, because and this is this is psychological not logical okay so I just want to finish with this is that um we cannot get rid of the discomfort Mm. that we feel and it's not about getting rid of the discomfort it's really easy to be motivated um for example I can my kitchen can be a total and utter mess I can be lying on the couch I can pick up the ipad and I can google domestic goddess and I can very quickly become incredibly motivated to have a perfectly clean kitchen and a matching set of aprons and the kids skipping out of the house in the morning with their perfectly packed lunches. But guess what? I'm still on the couch yeah. and the kitchen is yeah. still grotty. Yes. Yeah. So um, the logical brain, the psychological one working really differently. So if we were in the same space together and we decided we didn't like the colour blue, it's actually not a problem because we just gather up everything blue and we just get rid of it. But if you are a human being who doesn't like the way they're thinking or feeling, Mm. you can't just stop it and get rid of it. And then, and so, so part of this illogicalness of it, part of the psychology of it is how do we get you to that aspirational goal and how do we help you be big enough to take all of the, this blueness or <laughs> thinking or feeling along for the journey because it is um, simply not possible to take your discomfort or yourself, your human brain, whatever you like to call it, out of the equation. No, that's true. That's yeah. very true. Yeah, so, so aspirational is right, inspirational is right, motivational even right, but don't, think that it's a magic medicine that takes all of the hard work away you just have to have a pocket to be able to put the um, the discomfort in really along the jersey oh whatever image works we can certainly work with imagery if that works yeah pop it in the pocket you take it along but it doesn't always have to call out to you as the loudest thing (laughs) yeah beautifully (laughs) that controls you yeah that's right we want it can whine but you know you can when you get in the zone and you're actually doing something, that voice does become smaller, which is very nice. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, in your case, we want you to make decisions about your life. We don't want your thinking or your feeling to make those decisions. We want you to make the decisions. Yeah. 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 And with those words of wisdom, thank you very much, Shona. I hope you have it's a nice week. It's been a week. pleasure, Jane. And, uh, and we'll sign off. And, yeah, I hope everybody enjoys the podcast. Thank Thanks. you. Bye. Bye.